All right, Zig coming in on the top. Today on the show, we have Tim Lee and Sue Bauer from Bark. The Mississippi-based duo has been a staple of the DIY music scene. They have a new album out. It's called Loud. Tim and Sue both write songs. Um, Sue plays drums. Tim plays baritone guitar and bass six. And it's a duo that's like got this low, maybe more feeny type of undertones and like this passionate songwriting. And they both happen to be two of the nicest people in the world. After our conversation that you're about to hear, um, they sent me not only a vinyl of the new record, Loud, but the whole discography up into the Tim Lee uh, 3 band, as well as the book Tim wrote called I Saw a Dozen Faces, uh, a diary of the DIY music journey. One you should definitely check out, which is so sweet of them, and I really appreciate that. Thank you, guys. Thank you for all the vinyl. Thank you for the book. Thank you for your time in this conversation. I also noticed uh, Tim did a band with our friend Howard in that book. I got questions on that. Anywho, um, we're going to listen to a track. This is Rock Club off Loud, the band's bark. Check it out.
Rock Club barks the band loud is the album available now on all streaming platforms check it out i also noticed these guys did a track with our friend mike baguetta so definitely these guys got good taste you gotta dive into them bark check them out friends um before we get into this conversation if you could like rate review subscribe to the podcast and any of the podcast platforms it helps me keep talking to cool guests like tim and sue here and with that being said here's our conversation well to kind of get into it um I wanted to start with knowing about the Windbreakers. Um, well, that was a band I had in the 80s. Me and a guy named Bobby Sutliff, who died this past year. Um, we were in Jackson, Mississippi, and we were just these, you know, goofy rock-obsessed kids that uh, we really got into, like, the power pop thing, especially the 70s, kind of big star and um, shoes and things of that nature. And, uh, but we, you know, we were big Beatles fans and all that too. And so we had this band and we made a seven inch EP and then just sent them out in the world. And, you know, then we made an, we, uh, started making records with Mitch Easter and different people. And, um, so, you know, we're on several independent labels of that era. And then, you know, toured pretty good bit. And, uh, but just, you know, beyond that, never, you know, we, we, we worked pretty hard, but we never got <laughs> any farther than being on independent labels and <laughs> riding around in ratty vans, sleeping on floor. But the, that's, it's like when you first start playing, you're like, man, I can't wait till we're, we're in the van. You know what I mean? Like there's like those, those like moments where you're like, Man, and then when you're in the van, you're like, oh, when are we not going to be in the van? <laughs> like those moments yeah. of checks, you know? Oh, I, I absolutely loved it, you know, and I still, you know, like getting in the van and going places to play. So it's a uh, it's a it's a lifelong thing. <laughs> so. Definitely agree. Definitely agree on that. Was like is how at that point, how long were you singing and playing? Um. Probably 10 years, well, eight or eight or nine years. I started playing guitar when I was like 13. And we started doing that stuff when I was in my early 20s. Gotcha. So, and Susan, yeah. what about your music journey? Where did it start? Were you in a group too? Uh, no, actually, I didn't start playing until the early 2000s. Um, and and that was a, it was a total... Like, I mean, I played piano when I was a kid. I took piano lessons like, like we all did. And um, that's our dog. He's for reason. Um, and like one morning in the early 2000s, I woke up on a Saturday morning and I said to Tim, I wanted to learn to play bass. And he got up and, and went to the pawn shop and bought me a bass. And started teaching me how to play. And within about six months, we were had a band together and I was on stage. Um, was that the Tim Lee three? Uh, it was first just the Tim Lee band. And because um, Tim was sort of, he had, he had stepped away from it from most of the 90s. And, um, and we, um, he didn't, he had sort of, he had made a solo record at the beginning of the 2000s. And, um, and that was right about the time he did that was when I decided I wanted to play bass. Um, so it initially started out as, as you know, the Tim Lee band. And 
you know, four people, and at one point it was five people, and then we, you know, when it became three people, um, me on bass, Tim playing guitar, and a, and a drummer, that was when it became the Tim Lee Three, um, which was, what was that, 2006? Yeah. Yeah. At 2006, because we, we suddenly had a gig in North Carolina that we really, 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 really wanted to do because it involved opening for Steve Wynn and the Miracle 30. And um, so, and our drummer that we had didn't want to do it. So we had a, got another drummer and became the Tim Lee 30. Yeah. Got it. Got it. It's those, it's those minor switches that, you know, make the story murky. You know what I mean? When you're reading about it, but in the moment makes so much sense. Like, Oh yeah. <laughs> Very cool. Okay. So like where'd your guys' cro- uh, past cross then? Like how'd you guys meet? <laughs> uh, <laughs> oh, yeah. we, we met at, of all places we met at a fraternity house yeah um, yeah at, at a college that neither one of us were going to <laughs> small liberal arts college down in jackson Millsaps college um uh my brother was going to school there and was a member a member of the uh uh he was a pike at Millsaps, and he was the entertainment chairman for Rush and then hired Tim's band to play the final party after at the end of Rush Week. And he had asked me to come and help uh, serve, I guess, food or drink or whatever and, and, and talk about how great everybody was. Um, and we met that night. Tim and I did. Yeah. So was that a gig? Was that that's awesome? And what? Yeah. Which which band was it at that time? Uh, that was oh man, that was a band called The Occasions. That was quite a while back. <laughs> and like pre Windbreakers. Okay, pre Windbreakers. Like so, when you start playing, like I, I totally get when when you do music, it's like any gig is like yes, you know what I mean. Like until until you really get a flow of things going in a consistent like. You know, the, the idea that you have to, you can say no is such a scary, like, foreign idea. Like, oh, I guess I can say no to that gig. You're like, no, no, I need a gig. Yes, please. You know? <laughs> yeah. So you wind up in all these different bands. Was that, like, up until the Windbreakers, or maybe d- even during the Windbreakers, Tim, were you always in, like, multiple projects? Not really, but, you know, where I g- grew up mostly was in Jackson, Mississippi, and at the time, you know, nobody played original music. It was just unheard of. And God, you couldn't make any money playing original music. Well, you know, it's, it's just there wasn't a place for it. There, you know, um, you played dances and parties or whatever, and the only the next place you could go was the Coliseum if you were as big as Journey or some crap like that. But we, uh, so you know, we just played it. But then, as I started, you know, going to different towns and going to see bands play at clubs and seeing, you know, look, there's an opener that comes out and plays 50 minutes and of their own stuff. I really, I started pushing to do that. And then that's when everybody started going like, well, how are you going to make any money doing that? It's like, well, you know, I didn't necessarily pick up a guitar because I thought I was going to make a dollar. Cool. And I think this is a cooler way of doing it. And so Really, you know, to my bands were the first bands around Jackson that were really doing original stuff and, and pushing it. Um, and, you know, so there was a, there, a friend of ours 
Robert Crook had a band called the Used Goods, and he found this little hole-in-the-wall bar called Sidetracks, and he booked it there. And then somebody bought the place and changed the name to WC Don's, which stands for we couldn't decide on a name. <laughs> Equally as good as Sidetracks. Sidetracks is a pretty good bar name. <laughs> yeah, right next to the railroad tracks. It was very obvious, but... <laughs> So this old guy ended up owning it, and we just kind of, Susan and I went to him and said, hey, what if we bring touring bands in here? You know, you sell beer, and we'll charge three bucks at the door. And and he was amenable to that. So we we brought in Green on Red and Rain Parade, the Neats, the Wires, people like that. And um, Well, we sort of realized that, that we were going to a bunch of places to see original music, and we realized that where Jackson was situated, um, everybody had to come through Jackson, either on Highway 55 or um, 20. Um, You know, it was basically a crossroads, and anybody that was touring in the South had to come through Jackson. So we started, you know, Tim reached out to booking agents and, and, and like, you know, we we can can put it, we can throw out a, a routing date, you know, middle of the week, whatever. And it was great because, you know, we didn't have to travel as much anymore to see people we wanted to see. And it ended up people really were kind of hungry for that kind of thing. You Mm -hmm. know, we usually had good crowds for this, you know, and the bands made some money and they stayed at our house and we made a lot of lifelong friends. Well, and that's, that's the richest richness that you can't, money can't buy. You know what I mean? Like, when you're oh, traveling like that, to have a the gig, to have a pl- a reason to be in this in Jacksonville or to be in any city, is so important, especially when you're playing. You know, like, um, so that's that's like you you saw the need for it and made it. That's like the DIY ethos. That's it. That's so cool. Oh, yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. yeah, and then you know, and then we started putting out our own records and and you know, just kind of get built built on that and. Uh, and here, eight hundred years later, still doing it. <laughs> That's amazing. Well, you know, still and, that, putting, and putting them on, <laughs> and getting in the van and going places to play. It just, you know. That's so. that's that's so inspiring and so important. Like because like knowing that, that, that there isn't a, a point in which it all ends. You know, I think it's important. And knowing that like there's out still a need for it. You know, people still yeah. going there, and you like I. And that's that's incredible because like and that's also a lot of work. That end of it is tired because I I work at an art gallery that books shows. Right. And I run the sound and book that. And like it's to go play everywhere and write your own music and work all day and be like, okay, we're here. What do you mean? The microphone cable's broken. Who broke that? (laughs) Ah, come on. (laughs) Exactly. It's uh, yeah, we keep everything around here. (laughs) That's a good call. Good call. <laughs> so was there someone who was doing their own music that really inspired you, um, Tim or Susan, like to write your own to get that initial bite? Or was it just that there was none going on? You're like, there's that's where I want to do. Well, for me, I just felt like, you know, if I was going to play music, that's where I wanted to go with it. Because, you know, playing in cover bands was never going to go beyond, you know, that thing. Right. And. I think the, the the inspiration for like starting to put out records and stuff is, you know, right at the tail end of the 70s, there were 
like these indie records, like the, the first television single on Orc Records, and then Chris Stamey had his car label that put out like you know sneakers records, and uh, Chris Bell forty five, and you know Shoes out of Zion Illinois put out their first album on their own that they recorded in their living room. So you would hear the about these these people doing these things, and you know you figure well. Hell, if they can do it, you know, why can't I? And so you just figure out a way to scrape up the money and do it. And then you send it out in the world and hope somebody hears it. <laughs> you know, and at the time, there, there was a certain openness to independent music. You know, the, the 80s independent scene was really starting to coalesce into another, you know, fanzines that would write reviews and, college radio stations that would play the record and, and you know, enough clubs to piece together a tour. And uh, we just kind of got there at the right time, you know, right as the door was being opened. That's well, and kind of, it's interesting because like, I guess my through line of understanding with DIY stuff, like you can, like you're saying, I can really trace a lot of things to the eighties, but it's mm-hmm. like beyond that, like, uh, you know, I think of like Ben Vaughn and like some cats like that, but I really, you know, I mean, like that—that's—that's that's like the kind of that's ama- impeccable timing, as I guess how I want to say, the jump yeah. in on that. And the group was what group would that would have been the Windbreakers that was jumping in on that for you? Yeah, okay, definitely. And uh, yeah, because you know we had those, you know, we from the little records, you know, seven inch records that people were putting out and. Yeah, you, know, you could tell from looking at them. They these were not put out by Warner Brothers or somebody like that. They were there was definitely a DIY quality to them. Uh, but you know, and that inspired me way more than you know people getting famous and playing coliseums and stuff. Well, it's it's immediate community. You know what I mean? I was talking with uh, um, Paul from the band Cinema Cinema about this, and not too long ago, the idea like. Like if you can kind of like support somebody and like welcome them in, it's like kind of being in on the joke, you know what I mean? And there's like, there's a sense of fun when you're like in on the joke, like an inside joke with a group. And it's like, it's a feeling that I don't, I don't, there's a feeling it's like no other when you're like, oh yeah, we're in this, we're in this, you know? And I think the DIY music community or the DIY whatever community is like, is that and when you're in it and when you see it grow and you see people from that go to those Coliseum gigs or whatever it be, you know what I mean? It's mm-hmm. like, yeah, we did it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's, it's 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 definitely a thing for sure. So, so um, so so from the Windbreakers, um, you did some stuff with Swimming Pool Q, or you played with them for a bit? Yeah, they were an Atlanta band. They're still around actually, and um, but uh, yeah, they. Susan and I moved to back and forth to Atlanta a couple of times and we were getting ready to move there in the late eighties and their singer called me up and said they had a tour coming up and needed a bass player. And, you know, and they were good friends of ours and I was like, sure, I'm in, you know, and I ended up playing with them for like two years, <laughs> but, uh, the three weeks turned into two years, but, uh, but yeah, you know, and that was really cool. That was, you know, because I did, I had several kind of sideman gigs. I played with Mitch Easter's band, Let's Active, for a couple of tours and played with Marty Jones on a tour. And so, just these side guys, side, side meet gigs would come <laughs> up. And, 
you know, and it was, for me, it was, it was good fun. You know, you can actually get a paycheck to go play and, but you could go out and, and it was another way to meet people. And, um, and you were doing your solo stuff too, right? Yeah. I mean, but I mean, I would, be, I would still be making records and doing whatever around that, but that was just a good, another good way to get out into the world and, you know, meet people, right. which was what all about was just going out and meeting people. Well, in the, it's because when you're doing that, it, as a side kind of where they both were you both playing bass in both bands, or was it bass in a swimming pool and like other were? Yeah, what? mostly I, I was like the guy that would get hired to play, you know, guitar the extra guitar and keyboard parts. So like you know, in the case of Mitch Eastern's band, they were a three piece, but I would play the parts from the records that the three piece couldn't cover. Gotcha, gotcha. Well, in, in like. But what's cool about that is you don't really, you're not really in charge of booking the thing. You're kind of, you know what I mean? Like, I've done a hand. Oh, yeah. You're along, <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the, there's like a certain, like, relaxed quality to, like, we're going where? You want to do that? All right. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> like there's a certain rolling when you're in that's, like, not leading role, you know? Um, that makes it seem way easier. Like, why would I ever lead anything? Holy crap, this is great. (laughs) (laughs) There's a lot of truth to that. But, you know, I'm also the guy that would end up, you know, even if I was a side guy, half the time I ended up making the set list or going and dealing with the club owner at the end of the night or whatever. Just, you know, I'm always used to just kind of taking charge. But, but in that case, you're not really taking charge, but, you know, you see that everybody else is busy, so you take care of what needs to be care of. No, I totally, I totally get that. Like, there's a couple gig, uh, gigs I was in, bands I was in for a couple of years where I was, like, the bass player, just kind of the side guy, but I'd be the first guy there. You know what I mean? Like, hey, right, nice to meet you. <laughs> like, <laughs> exactly. There's, uh, a, yeah, there's a thing. There's a thing when, and, like, it's cool because that does open certain doors and you meet certain people and certain things like um pan out and it's super incredible when you see the guy you met from that gig show up at the whatever other gig you know what i mean like um so those those are all like valuable like things to be doing you know and you can kind of see how another whole team runs their operation yeah yeah that's always fascinating to see how people like you know because we don't do this with the with business in mind, but there's certain things you have to do, you know, to, to conduct business, I guess. And I'm always fascinated by how different artists or bands or whatever how they conduct their business. It's a, it's a, it's an interesting topic, you know. Is there like through working with uh, through siding some of these gigs, has there been any like uh, kind of tricks of the trade you brought over? To how you handle it? Good question. Um, yeah, you know, like, because when I toured with Let's Active, that was pretty early on. And they had a road manager, Cliff Atchison, who was very organized. And so I just kind of, I watched him a lot. And, and just simple things like having, you know, a sheet of where all you're going that week and how long, you know, how far it is and where you staying about you know just having this organized view of what was coming up Uh, just little things like that that just make your life a little bit easier you know and seeing how they handle per diems or whatever 
you know, um, you know, their per diems might have been five times more than yours, but you know, <laughs> but it's, it was just kind of it was for me it was good to be able to go out and early on and and pick up on how that end of it is handled. Um, you know, because the music is the music. You know, you write up a set list, you play the songs. Um, but unless you're, you know, somebody that puts on a show or something, you know, and has to have the the flames and yeah, explosions. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, yeah, it was definitely. That's okay. That's those are all good things to take away though. When you don't, you know, and like having a clear set thing is really important it's one of those the doy things like oh yeah we should have wrote that down you know what i mean <laughs> you don't think about it until you see someone do it right um but uh in it uh, my friends from austin texas they play in a band called two player and they were in a bigger band called full service but they put it out in a way where it's like you do uh two percent of everything is actually playing music the rest oh, of I it is everything else oh yeah yeah <laughs> one hour out of the day is where you're actually doing the thing you're there to do yeah rest yeah. of the day getting to there and getting away from there to the next one <laughs> that yeah that's the majority of it yeah. <laughs> um so let's let's kind of work our way to bark um now uh, that was if that was the dog barking that was impeccable um <laughs> yeah um, he's sorry um so susan when did you switch to drums um, about 10 years ago. Yeah. Um, I, uh, I had a, oops, Sorry. I had a, um, a health issue that, um, was making it difficult for me to, um, continue to, to play bass. Um, and I wasn't ready to quit playing an instrument altogether anyway. So. So I was like, I could learn how to play drums. That would be, you know, easier, I thought. <laughs> the guy that had been playing drums with us in the Tim Lee 3 uh, actually taught drums to kids. Um, so he agreed to uh, to give me some lessons, and he, you know, gave me all of his um, copies of all of his um, um, charts and stuff that he used to, to teach the kids. And, um, and I started, you know, I just, you know, from there, he got me started and then I just kept, I worked at it, worked at it. Um, and then I, you know, I had one of those aha moments, you know, this, the rhythms that I had been playing, I realized how, how they actually should sound and, um, you know, limb independence, that, that was a, an aha moment. And, um, and then I was, uh, our practice space was in the basement of our house. We were living in Knoxville at the time. And um, I was, I would be practicing, like, like playing along with, like, Creedence Clearwater Revival songs. Because those drums are, like, really straightforward and, you know, really, really um, easy to feel. And Tim could hear me upstairs, and um, he, ca he came down. This is kind of how, this is the, the, the origin story of Bark. Because he um, he came down one down to the basement one day and said, you know, I want to I want to play with you. And I was like, okay, let's you know. We sort of started jamming, air quotes around jamming, and um, we started making up songs. We started making <laughs> yeah. up songs, yeah. 
And we were like, oh, this is a thing. And then we both, I think it, it happened simultaneously. We both said what would be perfect for this situation would be a base six. And, um, and it was. That's what, that's what made Bark, it's, gave Bark its unique sound. That's cool. That's awesome. So, like, through switching it, this whole new thing opens. And, like, I think in most creative endeavors, endeavors, that's that's when those things pop out. And, like, because yeah. um, the bass six, that's just, like, because I was looking at it, I'm, I'm like, it looks like a baritone guitar, but it's not. It's a six-string bass, right? Yeah, well, it's 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 a... It's like a baritone guitar that's a whole octave lower. So it's tunes oh, okay. E to E, but a whole octave lower than a guitar. So, you know, like if you play up at the 12th fret, you're playing the same range as a guitar. Yeah, that's sick. Yeah, that's yeah, cool. Like, you know, let the A string ring while you're playing up around the you know 14th fret and you're getting all of that range at the same time. He's basically and guitar at the same time is what it what it sometimes most yeah, of the time, yeah, yeah. yeah what it what it sort of has evolved into is that you know because because if he's if he's hitting on that that low e string and then playing you know chords or melody um on the other strings it, it's it's he is playing bass and guitar at the same time so yeah no that's awesome okay that makes so much more sense because i read bass six and i'm like i don't because i i just actually i just garbage picked a, a baritone guitar <laughs> Um, and me and my dad fixed it up and like I'm like maybe that's what it is maybe that's what I'm hearing because I like to listen to stuff before like yeah before reading about it Um, yeah and And I do capo you know some of the time so I a lot of it ends up being the baritone range because I'll capo to the fifth fret or whatever so that's that's a full sound and that that's so sick that's so sick Um, so like I guess so. Bark comes out of out of like you playing drums and like let's do something. Does the writing process like for? I mean, Tim, you've been writing songs for a while. Like, do you have a, a process that you go to, or is it always kind of a collaboration of who you're working with? It it varies. I mean, I'd say with Susan and I both songs generally start with the words, you know, and then the music comes later. I think Susan probably hears the music in her head earlier than I do. Because if I hear it in my head, I won't remember it when I pick up an instrument. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, yeah. You know, and whatever chord I play is pretty much what I'll follow, (laughs) you know. Right. Uh, You know, and that's just, it's one of those things, you know, yeah, I've been writing songs for 40 some odd years. And so if there's an idea, it, it, I can, I can follow through on it usually. It may not be a great song, but at least, you know, I have the the practice to be able to write a complete song. And because, um, you know, writing songs is like anything. You have to practice it, you you know. Um, when I was really young, I spent a lot of time practice. I spent probably more time practicing songwriting than I did practicing guitar. And so... Well, I think that's that's so it's so much harder to do, like, because like I, I uh, yeah, I, I set aside a time every day to practice the instruments and then practice the writing aspect of it, and like it's it, it can be such an uphill battle where you're like, where did I go with verse two? Ah, you know, like, <laughs> yeah, uh, and it, you know, and I I I tend to go with a lot of autopilot, you know, again. 
because I've done it for so long, I, um, a lot of times I will just, you know, start writing and just write and then, then go back and look at it and see what makes sense out of it or doesn't. And then, and I may just throw it away, but right. <clears throat> it's part of the process, I guess, just to get the bad stuff out of your system while you're trying to get the good stuff. Right. Well, no, I think that's incredibly important is just to write is, is it, so you, you do just like write lyrics on your own time, like at not playing music and then kind of take it, or is it inspiration where it's like, Oh, uh, float that's a cool idea for a song but and then dive into it you know what i mean like even though susan i know you i don't know if you wrote that one but i know you sang it yeah um, um wrote, yeah I, I wrote it and um tim i mean we you know we change things or suggest things or whatever in each other's songs so you know we credit both of us but that one that one um probably took about i started writing it right before the pandemic. Um, so it sort of turned into the most pandemic song that was written before the pandemic. Um, but I, I pretty much finished it, I think, um, by the end of the year. Um, and see, I would never do that. It's like, <laughs> if I don't, I don't have something I can call a song in 10 minutes, I don't want it. Yeah. <laughs> Got it. Got it. He, he does. <laughs> It's like the Joe Strummer uh, lyrics are like lettuce idea. Yeah. You know, like if it, they go bad unless you use them. (laughs) But, you know, on the complete opposite end, like Leonard Cohen's uh, Cohen's approach is like he's working on songs for 10 years. So there's no wrong way to do it. Yeah. Oh, no, no, not at all. Yeah. They're they're all totally legitimate. I'm just, I don't, I don't have that kind of patience. (laughs) (laughs) I, I get, get it. I get frustrated with a song if it doesn't want to act right in the beginning. <laughs> I f- yeah, I feel that. I feel that. Like when you you hear it, but you can't he- get it out, and you're like, "What?" Yeah. Um, or you get it, you just go, "Wow, that really isn't very good, is it?" <laughs> <laughs> there's there's no amount of polishing is going to fix that turd. <laughs> <laughs> That's true too. And then you're like, you gotta let it go. You're like, ah, oh, but it's, this could be the thing I want it to be, but I, it's just not. Yeah. <laughs> um, so okay, so you guys are writing tunes for Bark. Um, with a, there's a couple tunes I wanted to ask about. Uh, Rock Club. Um, I really like how the background vocals are very Talking Heads kind of sounding. Um, and that after talking with you guys for a little bit and getting that whole narrative of like how you're basically a ran whole scene, that that song resonates much more clearly. Um, can you tell me a little bit about how that one came up? Um, yeah, I, I think that one started out, um, me kind of as odd and sort of pretentious as it sounds, me kind of writing a letter to myself (laughs) and, you know, you stay up too late and you drink too much. And then, cause I, you know, the rock club is, you know, my favorite place to go, you know, and, and I like, I like being that old guy at the back of the room at the Wednesday night punk rock show, you know? (laughs) Yeah. 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 And I think I just kind of, you know, I wasn't scolding myself as I was just kind of amazed at how much I still like to do that. And still, you know, I, 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 I do like to see live music and I don't, and 
and I like to see it in a club. I don't, I have no, you know, I don't really enjoy concerts and things with assigned seating and big shows. I like small, intimate, loud things. And, um, so yeah, it just kind of started like that. And then, you know, it, it, it kind of took on a life of its own. I th- it, you know, after it started, it kind of wrote itself. I think I credit. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that one, like, I think, because there's so much, like, there's, I agree that that type of experience is way more personal and you really feel like you're in it. You know what I mean? Like, oh, yeah. Uh, and, and, and like, cause I saw there's this, we have this venue out in Cleveland called the, uh, uh, music box and it's a great venue. It's a great venue, but there's assigned seating and like yeah. you, you sit at a table in an assigned seat and like for a lot of the acts you see there, like that's clutch, you know, you're like, okay, cool. But I saw X there, and I'm like, I don't want to sit down and watch X. I want to be like up front, moving. Absolutely, yeah. Um, but um, but I mean, you know, so so there's, I, I I definitely relate to that, and like, it's one of those things where it, it rock feels like it has like an age limit, but it doesn't. You know what I mean? And like, I, th- I think I, of it self-imposed. Yeah, you know, I think bad. You know, they're. I'm too old to do this. Yeah, well, I mean, there's a lot in a song about you know when you think you're too old, you're not gonna have not gonna have much fun. You know, yeah. it's like you, people convince themselves of that all the time, and I think more than convincing themselves they're not gonna have fun, I think they forget how much fun it is. Yeah, because I think most people like my age, they they like having an assigned seat and a comfortable place with a clean bathroom and you know clear sight lines and <laughs> all that stuff. Totally get that. It's just that's not what excites me, you know. Um, I like seeing music with a dozen other people. <laughs> that's that's where I'm comfortable. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I, I think that's well said. I think like there is you kind of put that norm out there from the beginning. You know what I mean? Maybe as a kid you don't notice how gross the bathroom is, but I think everyone everyone hates gross bathrooms. <laughs> like. <laughs> yeah. Like there, it's there are worse things, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, that's a great tune. That one really struck with me. Like this whole album is great. I know. I'm sorry. I'm picking certain ones to the dive into, but the whole album it's really it sounds really good, and it's amazing that it's just the two of you doing this. And like the other one I wanted to ask about was um, I'm a I'm a I'm a loser, not a fighter. The first track. I know it's not called that. I don't think. Um, called. But that, uh, yeah. Um, but uh, that that line and like you used it in the in the the one sheet, and I think that's such like a, a powerful like kind of like like not statement, but play like philosophy in a way. Um, can you kind of dive into like was that like the 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 what am I looking? Song seed that planted that song in particular, or is that like something that came out of the writing of it? It came out of the writing. That's that yeah. song very definition of you know something inspiring because I literally was getting frustrated at not writing songs you know hadn't written any lately and I literally picked up a piece of paper and a pen and wrote it's just words on a page and that was the first line of the song and then that that muse or whatever just took over and I just wrote and, and in no time, 90% of it was there probably. 
And all every line just came out of that burst of inspiration of like my frustration making me write. It's just words on a page. And then it just then I kept going. And then, you know, I, 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 I'm real, you know, I, I guess I'm proud of anything. I'm proud of that. I'm a loser, not a fighter thing. And also the I want to burn it down, but I can't find a lighter. I mean, it's kind of like it's the frustration. Once I got it going, it kind of, you know, mirrored the frustration of being like, you know, a standard issue white guy in a world where other people are, you know, suffering and, and, and having to put up with shit that I'll never have to put up with, you know. And so, you know, I, I kind of joke that it's about being a terrible ally, the song. Uh, it's that's but once it got going, that's what, you know the the inspiration became well that's i think that's because there's so much like like you're saying there's so much stuff like you can't do stuff about but you can and you but how do you do like and even just that taking it to the frustration of creativity right you have all this like thing i want to do i just don't know how i want it to sound or what i want it to say (laughs) and i think that's a that's a like quintessential lesson of just doing it like that that song came from just doing it you know whatever just start the thing like there's so much in the kind of building into like there's a lot of at least i work with a lot of kids and a lot of like um people in general with like anxiety and they're afraid to do the thing because they're afraid to do it wrong and yeah because that is no scary to do it wrong but also like you gotta start somewhere. You gotta you gotta fall and get back up. You gotta like uh, scrape the, the the shins or whatever. Like and like it comes from that first doing it. But a lot of times, I think once you do it, that's what happens. And like yeah. that's a the the fire and the lighter line. The company that couplet right there is a really good like other metaphor of that. Yeah, it's a beautiful sure. tune, man, and it rocks. Oh. <laughs> yeah, we have a video for it that'll actually be coming out. Yeah, a, uh, another week and a half or so. Yeah, something like uh, that. Yeah, awesome. So, like, so a lot of this was kind of like a pre-pandemic tunes, or like during the pandemic, a lot of these tunes came to fruition, or what was that like time frame looking like? We were playing a few of them before the pandemic. Yeah, the, but, well, the last record, Terminal Everything, came out. Right before the pandemic, like in November, no, November of 19. 19 yeah. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I think, I think, you know, we've, we've had this habit and Tim even had this habit before I started playing, you know, before you even get a record out yard writing new songs. Um, and, you know, I think that, you know, a lot of these things, several of these things were already happening were in our live set yeah. um when terminal everything came out and um, and terminal everything was 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 such a um a emotional um thing because that that uh, that came out that that record was was influenced a lot by my dad passing expectedly and then 10 days later Tim's mom passing unexpectedly and, um, you know, at the time we, we weren't back in Mississippi, we were in Knoxville, but, um, so we were 
I was doing a lot of back and forth with my parents. And, and so it just sort of turned into this whole, you know, thing and it became terminal everything. And, and so once we got past that, you know, I think, I think the songwriting was a lot slower. A lot slower. It was a lot slower, you know, mainly because, you know, we had the pandemic um, and we had gotten a lot of, you know, emotional stuff out on, on terminal everything. Um, so I think, uh, there were, there were a few things, but, but, you know, we, we were really more, you know, not playing and just sort of. Well, kind of pandemicking. Because <laughs> we were, you know, we were in the middle of going out and playing and supporting, you know, terminal everything when everything ground to a halt. Yeah. Um, so you know, it, it was kind of a weird thing that, you know, like, unlike most bands, we lived in the same house and we rehearsed in the basement so we could keep playing, mm-hmm. but we couldn't go anywhere and play. <laughs> and, uh, so, but, and while we, so while we had that time to just play is like a lot of songs like love minus action and, uh, work in progress. A lot of those came along during that time. Mm-hmm. Rock club, I think was probably part of that too. Yeah. Um, yeah, things that, like I said, we had not, that we just, you know, we had the time to do it, so we did it. Yeah. I guess yeah. it was boiled down to. Yeah. God, but, you know, like, well, yeah, and I think I think having that time, and I think a lot of people utilize that to do, uh, especially bands, utilize that to get the thing out, whatever the tunes that were flowing. And then it's like the, but what I love about that is it doesn't sound like a pandemic record. Like there's a there's there's gonna be a pandemic record sound. Yeah. Uh, it's gonna be Malika, like melancholy and like uh, lo-fi. It's gonna be uh, when we look back, we're gonna there's <laughs> there will be a flood of records that are going to be that. I'd like yeah yeah. Remember how many like uh, lo-fi home recordings of ironic '70s covers came out during the pandemic? Yeah. <laughs> Explain to me what that was all about. <laughs> Going through the record collection you put aside, no one wanted to dive into, I guess. And then they yeah. dove into it. They're like, oh, my aunt's records are sweet. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Maybe. I don't know. <laughs> like, but, you um, know, we ordered the record during the pandemic. Um, we were still living in Knoxville, Tennessee, and we'd gotten to know Matt Patton and Bronson, too, who had the dial back studio here in water valley where we live now and um just gotten to know them from them come to our shows and we played in the area and just seemed like they'd be cool guys to record with and nobody else that we usually worked with were really you know recording and they had a system whereby they would do kind of a pod you know and so and with us just being two of us it was pretty easy to do that and so we came over here to Water Valley twice and recorded with them. And um, so it was a, it was an interesting, you know, kind of world where, you know, if you wanted somebody to play on something, you'd send the track to them and they'd record it at home and send it back and that kind of thing. Whereas in the past, we'd usually just, you know, come meet, you know, come meet us at the studio. We'll have a good time, blah, blah, blah. This yeah, is like, yeah, yeah. Hey, you know, um, like Jimbo Mathis played on one song. He just, he lives like real near here and he had just, 
he saw on Facebook or something that we record and he dropped in and we got him to play. But for the most part, it was, it was stuff that, that, you know, Susan and, and then Matt and Bronson and Schaefer Yana was assistant engineer. And so it was just the five of us in there most of the time. And, and Matt engineered most of the, the backing vocals. Those were mostly his, you know, the, where there's group vocals and stuff. That was, he's, he's really sharp with that. And, and you know has a lot of fun with it and i think i think you pick up on how fun a lot of the backing vocals are yeah i think so i think they so but it was it was it was cool and then you know it's just taken us a while to get around to putting it out because you know in the right after the pan not long after the pandemic we we ended up moving and we're back here in mississippi now and um then all of a sudden it was like oh yeah we need to put this record out (laughs) Yeah, yes. we started, what year and a half a or something, half. something yeah. like that. Yeah, which is not our not our usual style. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, well, and I, I get it because like as soon as it's like as soon as you're done with the one, the next one's already cooking. You know, <laughs> is that the case for you guys? They got one kind of a rounding the corner of being recorded, or no? We both kind of after we finished that one, both kind of hit some dry spells, and then we like I said, we spent a lot of time moving and getting settled, resettled, and all. And have just started working on new songs. We've got three new ones that we're working on. And oh, there you go. That's a third of the way there. Let's see. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's so funny. We usually, like, by this point, we would have had an album's worth of songs and then some. So yeah. it feels to me like we haven't done anything. <laughs> <laughs> well, but these are, we really like, we're really kind of itching to record them and maybe just throw them out there as an EP or something. That's, so. that's exciting. That's awesome. Is it yeah. same like same instrumental setup? You still using the bass V six? Yeah, but yeah, the bass drums and um, you know the bass and the basics is a challenge because you're it's you, you've got to figure out how to not make every song sound exactly the same. Right. And right. 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 Fun playing with it and you know, especially when you just have two instruments and, you know, drums sound like drums and bass six sounds like bass six. And, and I use more effects with the bass six than I would play in standard guitar. Just, you know, um, but it's, it's just, it's a, it's a fun challenge, but you know, like I think these three new songs probably don't sound like anything on any of the previous records. (laughs) So it's, it's, it's exciting when you can break, break out something that that does feel different to you than what you've done before well that's like it's interesting because like i find myself playing in a lot of open tunings right just doing that thing you know to to do that to purposely like kind of throw off that process of how you would normally just throw a progression together you know or or some type of musicality and like you do find yourself doing a lot of the same bits at first because you're like oh it's this it's all in d like or whatever so like, but the, yeah. then comes those little like, well, if I do this, what I don't even right. know where I'm at now, you know? Oh yeah, I mean it's the thing I'm always fascinated by is you know, when, especially when pe- people start writing songs young, they go through a phase of feeling like they have to invent chords. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> phase that all the chords already exist. Just you just found a new way to like put your fingers, you know? Yeah. yeah. I, there was a while at Knoxville where I, I was actually doing a reasonable amount of kind of studio work getting called in to play on people's records and you know people have like three capos in different places ah. you just get, you know, 
you're playing. And they go, like, this one, this one, this one. Oh, you're playing a C. That's great. <laughs> <laughs> you've done this, and you even engineered this ingenious way to play that chord. <laughs> and I, I get, you know, maybe like in, in the club, it looks like it, it becomes like a busking thing. You're like, oh, I got people's attention because I'm doing a weird thing. Even yeah. though it's something simple, right? It's like it's it's a different way to kind of work that that game of it. But like yeah. when it comes to recording, you're like, oh, it's just a C. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it, it's uh, you know, I mean, it's all sleight of hand. Let's face it. Yeah, you know? yeah. Smoke and mirror society. Yeah, that's right. You know, Halen didn't have to do all those things he did, but it sure made it cooler that he did. <laughs> For sure, yeah, yeah. And that, well, that's part of the entertainment aspect of it. You know, you got to have fun doing it, and like. It could be fun to do something in a completely different way and get lost in that again. It's like beginner's mind in that sense. Oh, yeah. Um, but that's incredible. I mean, the record's really good, and I'm excited. I'm excited that the next one is in the works. Do you Are you guys planning to hit some out-of-town dates with this, uh, with this record? Yeah, definitely. We've, we've got... Uh... We've got like 18 dates between now and the end of the year. Nice. I, yeah, my my pardon me, my day gig is I'm a production director for a public radio program down here, and it has a fall season that kind of ties me up every Thursday. So until the middle of November, we're really just going out and playing weekends. But then late November, early December, we will do a couple of weeks, you know, up and down the East Coast and wherever else we can get to. So nice. What's your show? What's our show? Yeah. Your oh, show, the, the radio show. Uh, it's called the Thacker Mountain Radio Hour. Um, it's on Mississippi Public Broadcasting and Alabama Public Radio and um, Tennessee. Yes, you know, some stations in Tennessee and one in New Mexico. But it's uh, it's cool. It's a one hour live show. That's you know they it's. It's based out of Oxford, Mississippi, so there's always an author on there talking about their book and reading from it, and then two musical acts that both play, like, you know, three songs or something, and it runs the gamut from, you know, singer-songwriters to blues artists to gospel choirs to you name it, you know. And yeah, it's, it's fun. I, I, I basically book the music and stage manage. Yeah, um, very cool. Yeah. Very cool. Yeah. So it's taking all that DIY stuff and putting it there. That's so awesome. Yeah. So it gives me that's what I told somebody when they when they told me about the job. I'm like, oh, somebody actually gets paid to do what I do all the time for nothing. Uh, <laughs> that's uh, I'm definitely gonna have to check that out. That's a cool. That's so cool, man. Well, guys, thank you so much for chatting with me, and I hope if you come by Cleveland that I can catch you live. Okay. Yeah. Um, we may hit you up for a gig sometime. Yeah, no, please, please do. We had a we had a Cleveland gig booked for the spring of 2020. Yeah. Uh, do you know Dave Swanson? Uh, is he a bass player? No, I think he's a guitar player. But he, you know, like I think he was in Guided by Voices at one time or okay. Death of some those bands. But he's and I can't remember his current band. But he always has a couple of bands, and he does a radio show on one of the stations there. But we were going to do something with one of his bands and um, I can't even remember where it was at this point, but then of course the pandemic happened and it yeah. didn't. It was, Bark has never played Cleveland. We've played Columbus and Cincinnati, but never yeah. Cleveland. So, okay. well, keep me like, keep, keep my number. And like, 
when you're when you're working your way up here, we'll try to figure something out because there's. Yo, Spike Spiegel here. You just listened to Zig of the Gig podcast. Keep riding the bebop. See you, Space Cowboy. Bang.